Welcome to Circulation on the Run, your weekly podcast summary and backstage pass to the journal and its editors. I'm Dr. Carolyn Nam, Associate Editor from the National Heart Center and Duke National University of Singapore. And I'm Dr. Greg Hunley, Associate Editor from the Pauling Heart Center at VCU Health in Richmond, Virginia. Well, Carolyn, this week's feature investigates the COMPASS trial and is going to examine the role of combination antiplatelet and anticoagulation therapy in patients with diabetes and cardiovascular disease. But before we get to that feature discussion, how about we grab a cup of coffee and jump in and discuss some of the other papers in the issue? You bet, Greg. I've got my coffee right here. <laughs> and I'd like to start by talking about paclitexel-containing devices. You may already know this, but it was nice to revise that these significantly reduce reintervention in patients with symptomatic femoral popliteal peripheral artery disease, as we may expect. However, a recent aggregate data meta-analysis reported increased late mortality in PAD patients treated with these paclitexel-containing devices. Thus, Today's authors, Dr. Roka Singh from Prairie Heart Institute of Illinois at St. John's Hospital, and their colleagues performed an individual patient data meta-analysis to evaluate mortality using data from eight randomized controlled trials of FDA-approved paclitexel-coated devices using de-identified data that was provided by manufacturers. Well, Carolyn, what did they find? So in 2,185 patients and 386 deaths from eight Pacotec cell-coated device trials with a four-year median follow-up, there was a 4.6% absolute risk of increased mortality associated with Pacotec cell-coated device use compared to balloon angioplasty at a median of four years follow-up significant loss to follow-up and withdrawal rates of 24% and 23% in balloon angioplasty and paclitexel cohorts respectively through five years were observed. Recovery of lost vital status data reduced the observed paclitexel device-associated mortality rate, and there was no paclitexel drug dose mortality relationship identified. Oh, Carolyn, I think this is really an important finding, and we have a nice editorial, don't we? So what was the take-home message? Yeah, in fact, this was discussed in an important editorial by Drs. Royce, Chakraborty, and Zhao from the U.S. FDA. Now, listen up. So based on the prior aggregate data meta-analysis and subsequent FDA review, FDA had already communicated that clinicians should consider the increased rate of long-term mortality when making treatment recommendations. They had also implemented updated labeling for this device class to communicate the risk. So, in this editorial, the FDA commended the authors of the current individual patient data meta-analysis for providing important information towards signal refinement and also commended their collaboration with device manufacturers to work together with a shared goal of patient safety. Now, there are still many unanswered questions, including the mechanism for the observed increase in late-term mortality associated with these devices and how the benefit-risk profile of these devices may shift across various patient populations. 
Well, Carolyn, my paper comes from Professor Anche Beiling from Charité Universitas Medizine in Berlin, and it investigates heart-specific immune responses in an animal model of autoimmune-related myocarditis mitigated by an immunoproteasome inhibitor and a genetic ablation. So Carolyn, this study used mouse models to understand mechanisms involved in immune checkpoint inhibitor-related myocarditis, a phenomenon that we can observe in five to 10% of patients that are receiving these checkpoint inhibitors for treatment of their cancer. So what did they find, Greg? Several things, Carolyn. All immunoproteasome deficient strains of mice showed mitigated autoimmune-related cardiac pathology with less inflammation, lower pro-inflammatory and chemotactic cytokines, less interleukin-17 production, and reduced fibrosis formation. The autoimmune signature during experimental troponin I autoimmune myocarditis with high immunoproteasome expression immunoglobulin G deposition, interleukin-17 production in heart tissue, and troponin I-directed humoral autoimmune responses was also present in two cases of immune-mediated related myocarditis, thus demonstrating the activation of heart-specific autoimmune reactions by this checkpoint inhibitor-related myocarditis therapy. So, Carolyn, Perhaps by reversing heart-specific autoimmune responses, immunoproteasome inhibitors applied to these mouse models demonstrated their potential to, in the future, aid in the management of autoimmune myocarditis in humans, possibly including cases with immune-mediated myocarditis heart-related specific autoimmunity. Oh, that's really nice, Greg. Thanks. How about a quiz? Remember what decimal placan is, Greg? <laughs> I think this is going to do something with right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Very nice. So decimal placan is the primary force transducer between cardiac desmosomes and intermediate filaments. And mutations in decimal placan indeed cause an arrhythmogenic form of cardiomyopathy that has been variably associated with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Clinical correlates of decimal placan cardiomyopathy have been limited to small case series. Today's paper by Dr. Helms from University of Michigan and colleagues is the largest series of decimal placan mutation carriers reported to date. So, Carolyn, what did they find here? Among 107 patients with pathogenic decimal placan mutations and 81 patients with pathogenic placophilin-2 mutations as a comparison cohort, they found compelling evidence that decimal placan cardiomyopathy is a distinct form of cardiomyopathy marked by a high proclivity for left ventricular hypertrophy and arrhythmias and associated with intermittent myocardial inflammatory episodes that appear clinically similar to myocarditis or sarcoidosis. Furthermore, they found that diagnostic and risk stratification variables that performed well for placophilin 2 associated ARVC exhibited poor accuracy for the diagnosis and risk assessment of decimal placan mutation carriers. So these results strongly indicate that a genotype-specific management approach is essential for decimal placan cardiomyopathy. 
Wow, Carolyn. Lots of great science in this issue. Well, just like last week, we have got a lot of other papers in this issue. So let me tell you about a few that I've had a chance to purview. The first is a research letter by our own Dr. Hesham Sadak from UT Southwestern Medical Center involving the homotypic fusion generates multinucleated cardiomyocytes in the murine heart. Next is an ECG challenge. It's from Dr. G. Neil Kay at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and really reviews an ECG in a patient that presents with pulmonary embolism. Next, there's a case series from Dr. Nir Uriel from Columbia University Medical Center regarding the variety of cardiovascular presentations of COVID-19. Next, there's an On My Mind piece that comes to us from Dr. Ursula de Filippis from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, and it involves cardiopulmonary resuscitation during this COVID-19 pandemic and it presents a view from trainees on the front lines. Next, Carolyn, one of your faves, Dr. Leslie Cooper from the Mayo Clinic provides an informative white paper on the description and proposed management of acute COVID-19 cardiovascular syndromes. Next is a paper from Dr. Francine Marquez from Menashe University, and it's a perspective piece on the impact strategies, and opportunities for early and mid-career cardiovascular researchers during the COVID-19 pandemic. So many studies have been stopped, and this very nice article highlights the new opportunities in this pandemic. Next, Dr. Annabelle Volgman from Rush University Medical Center has a piece on the seniors on the sidelines, and it's a call to action. And then finally, Dr. Andrew Chapman from University of Edinburgh and Professor Christian Mueller from the University Hospital Basel exchange letters to the editor regarding a prior article of high sensitivity cardiac troponin and the universal definition of myocardial infarction. Nice. There's also a research letter by Dr. Sandoval and colleagues who describe the transition to using high sensitivity troponin in a United States regional healthcare system, namely the Mayo Clinic Enterprise. And they really showed that a small increase in MI diagnosis, in part due to an increase in type 2 MI diagnosis, occurred without an overall increase in hospital admissions or resource utilization using the high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T implementation. And if I may mention, there is also a beautiful white paper by Dr. Sana El-Khatib, whom I was very lucky to co-author with. And it's on the advancing research on the complex interrelations between atrial fibrillation and heart failure. This a report from the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute virtual workshop. Wow, a bonanza of an issue. Thanks so much, Greg. Let's move on to our feature discussion now. Look forward to it. Today's feature discussion was, in fact, a late-breaking clinical trial presentation at the American College of Cardiology meeting this year, 2020. And it's all about the COMPASS trial, this time focusing on diabetes. 
I'm so, so pleased to have with us the corresponding author, Dr. Deepak Bhatt from Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as Dr. Gregory Lip from University of Liverpool, who was not only the guest editor, but also an editorialist for this paper. So welcome, gentlemen. Deepak, could I start with you? This was an incredible presentation that was very well discussed. ACC, huh? Virtually. But I'm just so glad that we can have you on this podcast to tell us again, please, the rationale, the key findings, and why this paper is just so important. So the background really is that prior studies, in particular registry studies, the REACH registry, for example, had shown that patients with concomitant CAD and or PAD, that is coronary artery disease and or peripheral artery disease, plus diabetes are folks that are at extremely high risk of future ischemic events. This is true even if they are apparently stable outpatients. At any rate, in the COMPASS trial, these sorts of patients with CAD or PAD, stable patients, both with and without diabetes, were enrolled, 27,000 plus patients randomized. And there were three arms in the study, aspirin alone, rivaroxaban alone, and aspirin plus low-dose rivaroxaban, 2.5 milligrams twice a day. And that was the winner, that combination arm, sometimes referred to as dual pathway inhibition, significantly reduced ischemic events versus aspirin alone a significant reduction in cardiovascular death, MI stroke, as well a lower rate, significantly so, of cardiovascular death and even all-cause mortality was lower. So the overall trial was positive, but what we wanted to examine in this analysis was specifically how do patients with diabetes fare, knowing that they're a higher-risk group in general across multiple registries and studies. And indeed, we found that they were higher risk, those with diabetes versus those without diabetes and COMPASS. And indeed, though their relative risk reductions were similar, those patients with diabetes had numerically larger absolute risk reductions than those without diabetes with this regimen of low-dose rivaroxaban plus aspirin versus aspirin alone. Thanks, Deepak. And I just have to refer the listeners to those beautiful figures in your paper. I mean, just one look at it really explains exactly what you were saying and really highlights that patients with diabetes are at higher risk of adverse events and also in one of the graphs of bleeding. Greg, could I bring you in here? You mentioned that in your editorial as well, that there has to be importantly acceptable bleeding risk. Could you expand on that? The COMPASS trial was a game changer. And in this subgroup, this high-risk subgroup, as we elegantly has described, these are diabetic patients. And we also have the subgroups with or without prior PCI. And those with PCI, of course, being the higher risk group of patients. Nonetheless, the comparison was basically a dual pathway inhibition with a combination of rivaroxaban plus aspirin compared to aspirin alone. But a high cardiovascular risk and high bleeding risk tend to track each other. So it's important that whilst we certainly want to reduce the outcomes, the adverse outcomes of cardiovascular endpoints, we should certainly individualize our assessment of our patients and make sure that the patient is not at excessive high bleeding risk. I think overall, the study is very reassuring because there was no significant access in the overall subpopulation of the subgroup, at least in relation to fatal bleeding, critical organ bleeding, or intracranial hemorrhage by dual pathway inhibition. But I think when we as physicians 
just need to assess the patient in front of us just to make sure that particular patient is not at high risk, particularly of bleeding, given that high risk of bleeding also generally is high cardiovascular risk as well. Thank you, Greg. And Deepak, perhaps maybe some words from you about this sort of risk-benefit ratio. How do you see it? You know, how do we apply these results? I totally agree with everything Dr. Luke said. Really, the key message when we're talking about antithrombotics ever is something Dr. Bronwald had said in this context, that is, there's no free lunch when it comes to antithrombotics. There's always bleeding risk. That There's just no way around that. And any trial that is adequately powered long enough will find that, and that can include bad bleeding. Now, fortunately, there was no significant excess in fatal or intracranial bleeding within the trial or within the subgroup of patients with diabetes. But nonetheless, one needs to be cautious because these, of course, are carefully selected patients at low bleeding risk to get into the trial. There's a run-in period. So, you know, when applying to real life, of course, there's the potential for bleeding. So we need to be really cautious about that. And it's also not like a stent. So if we were talking about secondary prevention, either with or without diabetes, CAD, PAD, both of them together, of course, all those patients should be on a statin, assuming they don't have a real type of contraindication. So, you know, that's kind of a no-brainer. That's a matter of implementation science. A lot of patients that should be on statins aren't, but that's not an issue of science. We already know the answer there. You know, here, it's not the case of everyone that is like this who has diabetes or, or even who doesn't, who has CAD or PAD, should be on this regimen. It needs to be carefully selected patients, patients that are at a low bleeding risk. And sometimes doctors ask, well, how do you tell that? Well, it's not always easy, but for sure, there's some things that predict future bleeding risk, such as prior bleeding. So prior bleeding, you know, anemia, those are powerful predictors of future bleeding. And there, you know, one would want to be really cautious in these largely stable outpatients that we're talking about in the COMPASS trial and intensifying their antithrombotic regimen. But in the right patients, I think it's a really effective way of reducing important future vascular risk whether that's cardiovascular risk consisting of MI-related endpoints, stroke, peripheral ischemic endpoints, including amputation, which was significantly reduced in the trial and within the subgroup of those with diabetes. So, you know, it's a matter of balancing those, but I do think with careful decision-making on the part of the physician, with discussion with the patient, with their understanding of the risks and benefits of intensifying the antithrombotic regimen beyond aspirin, there are a substantial number of patients who could benefit. I fully agree with Deepak's comments. And we do have to bear in mind also that risk is also a fairly dynamic process. And we may well be assessing the patient as a one-off initially while we are initiating treatment. But of course, risk, whether from cardiovascular risk or whether from bleeding risk particularly, also is influenced by increasing age and by incident comorbidities, which really means that risk reassessment should be performed at every patient contact. And with bleeding risk in particular, there are modifiable bleeding risk factors that we can mitigate. So proactive assessment or rather reassessment of risk, whether both from cardiovascular events and our bleeding is necessary as we follow up these patients. Thank you both. Deepak, I'm just going to build a bit on your analogy of no free lunch and maybe sort of a general question to you both because it seems like we've got a bonanza of a buffet now when it comes to diabetes, especially with the new anti-diabetic drugs. So how do you think this fits in all together? You talked about statins. We now talk about low-dose rivaroxaban in addition to aspirin. And you think diabetic patients should be treated with all? 
Maybe Deepak first and Greg? What a terrific question. In fact, that was asked of me by the late-breaking clinical trial panel. That is, they said, well, you know, how does it fit in? Because these data look terrific, but there's also other new diabetes drugs and approaches. So for sure, I would say, again, barring a real contraindication, I would say everyone that we're talking about here should be on a statin and preferably if they can tolerate it, a high-intensity statin. And if that doesn't do the trick in terms of LDL goal, I would say azetamide. And potentially, if they're in a region of the world where it's affordable, a PCSK9 inhibitor. Then beyond that, I think we've got to pay attention to triglycerides these days, not just LDL cholesterol. And think mm. of some patients that sort of like reduce it, well, then they should be on icosapentethyl. So we can modify LDL-related and triglyceride-related risk without too much effort or too much in the way of side effects. Then beyond that, I would say we've got to think about blood pressure and adequate control, especially in those with diabetes, but even those without that have cardiovascular disease. And then we have to think about glycemic control. And I don't mean the old-fashioned way, but I mean with some of the newer drugs, SGLT2 inhibitors in particular have been found to be useful for both not just the glycemic control part of things, more importantly, cardiovascular outcomes, in particular, heart failure and renal-related outcomes. And then GLP-1 agonists as well have been shown to be very useful once more modifying cardiovascular outcomes, including atherosclerotic outcomes. So there is, as you said, quite the buffet. And assuming (laughs) a patient can tolerate that polypharmacy and afford it, I do think the majority of patients with diabetes should be treated that well. And that's, of course, on top of lifestyle modification, weight loss is particularly important, plant-based diet, et cetera. But on top of that, then, if all those things are being done and a patient is still at high ischemic risk, but is at low bleeding risk, that's where I think even in the deceptively stable appearing outpatient, it's worthwhile just running a mental checklist and saying, okay, you know, are they on an SGLT2 inhibitor check? Did someone measure a triglycerides check? And then on that checklist is, yeah, could they tolerate being on more than just aspirin alone in terms of bleeding risk? And if the answer to that is yes, might they benefit from adding this on? And, you know, there are a lot of patients these results apply to. And I think a proportion of those patients who are otherwise optimally treated for their risk factors are the ones to target. Beautifully put. And Greg? Deepa does raise an increasingly applied concept in how we approach our patients at high risk of cardiovascular events. That's a so-called integrated or holistic approach to management because we've in the past tended to just focus on one strand of management. For example, you know, we may well just be putting a lot of focus only on lipid reduction and ignoring the rest. Well, we can't do that these days. We have to manage the whole patient and not just a bit of the patient. And this brings in this holistic approach, this integrated approach. And I think Deepak summarized that very nicely. It may require a number of medical approaches or medication-based approaches, but uh, we have to proactively look at the comorbidities like blood pressure reduction and also the lifestyle changes that Deepak's already summarized. So a holistic and integrated approach to our care of these patients. And in fact, that some of the more recent studies showed nicely how this results in better outcomes in our patients at high cardiovascular risk. And in fact, those were exactly the last words of your editorial, a holistic and integrated care approach. Beautifully done. Thank you both so much for this excellent discussion. 
thank you, audience, for joining us today. You've been listening to Circulation on the Run. Don't forget to tune in again next week. This program is copyright the American Heart Association 2020.